Those of you not new to, new to the faith or exploring Scripture, it's right in the middle of the book of the Bible. Just open it right in the middle and you should land in the Psalms. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. <laughs> but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Grass withers, flowers fade. But the inerrant, inspired word of God stands forever. You may be seated. A few things are, are more frustrating in our technological age than having your cell phone die on you because the battery ran low. When you have a low battery, things don't work as well on your phone and you're not able to do as much. And a few years back, I had a cell phone which had this very problem. Um, it slowly but surely kept dying and got worse with age, so much so that it could barely make it through a whole day uh, without the battery being spent. Putting on my engineering hat, I realized that cell battery performance was uh, being affected by one thing, the charge rate of the battery. When it comes to rechargeable batteries, there are two kinds of charge rates. There are fast charge rates, and there are slow charge rates. The fast charge rate can get you up and going quickly with your, with your battery and, and your phone, therefore. In fact, the fast charge basically pumps more current into a phone battery, which creates more heat. But the downside of that with a fast charge is that your battery degrades. Also, a fast charge only affects the areas around the nodes that go down into the battery, the connecting points of the terminals. And if it wears out in the battery right around those terminals faster than the rest of the battery, then you really can't get to the rest of the battery without being able to get through those sections connected to the terminals. better way is a slow charge. The slow charge charges the whole battery. It requires less current. It creates far less heat. It puts less stress on the battery so that the battery lasts longer. The slow charge, if you will, is the key to a longer-lasting battery. 
You know, all of us here have spiritual lives that we manage in our relationship with God, whatever that looks like. And all of us are a whole lot like a cell battery in how we handle that. We live in an age where our hearts and our minds are stretched and stressed. And whether we're students or businessmen or moms at home, whether we're single or married, working or retired, most of us feel a little or a lot like the cell phone battery at the end of the day, don't we? We need to be recharged. We are those who need grace to bring us back to a full place of life in Christ. The key is we don't need recharging in the ways of the world. We need to be recharged in the way of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the way that he intended for us. And so over these ne- this next month or so, we're going to be talking about what recharging in Christ looks like. We're going to get back to basics as a church. We work hard as a church. We do a lot of things for a church of 400 people. It's amazing all that goes on. Yet we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. And the forest is knowing God. The God who created us and redeemed us. To know Him and glorify Him in a living relationship. And so we're going to get back to the basics on how to pursue Christ in this year of grounding together. Our starting point today is in Psalm 63. And what better place to look on what it means to have both great theology and great experience with God than in the Psalms themselves. And the question today coming out of Psalm 63 is what is it like or what does it look like to know God when your spiritual battery is low? And I believe that while many of us have batteries that are humming perhaps right now, spiritually, I think there are far more that have low batteries that want to deal with this question. And David is going to coach us on what that looks like in his life today as he models a pursuit of Christ even with a low battery. In fact, look at the introduction in verse 1 of, of, of Psalm 63 and what it says about David's circumstance of having a low battery. It's a psalm of David, that is the king of Israel, back in around 1000 B.C., when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And he says, oh, he starts to pray, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. (laughs) David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms. And 13 of those psalms have these little things at the beginning of them that tell you the the circumstance, the, the environment that David was writing this prayer in. And with passion, David already starts off with a deep longing to know God. The reason he prayed with a deep longing to know God was simple. David was in the desert, literally, in the wilderness of Judah, which is an arid place, a lot like out west in Arizona or, or maybe even um, uh, um, New Mexico or someone like, somewhere like that. Psalm 63 is a, is a prayer and a psalm of disorientation for David in the midst of being out in the wilderness. And the conditions for him were pretty rough. He was away from food and water, thirsty, as it says in this first verse. 
hungry. He didn't have shelter. More than likely, he slept on the ground at night with his head on a rock. That was very common in that age. Not only that, we know that David, in, his, in the story of 1 Samuel, actually lived in caves at some point as a place of shelter. So why was David in the wilderness? I mean, why would he be out there in the first place? Was it an outward-bound midlife crisis challenge? No. He was on the run. He was on the run from someone who wanted to kill him. Some think it might have been Absalom, his son, who at the end, uh, later on in his kingship uh, over the ruling over the nation of Israel, uh, rebelled against him, betrayed him, and tried to take over the kingdom. But I think it's more likely that it was King Saul, the king whom David had fought for, whom had been mentor and a leader, whom David had served, and who, out of a sense of threat, uh, threats with David, uh, that David would take over his kingdom, was more popular, turned on David. And like a wicked king sought to take his life in a jealous rage. David, in other words, was on the run. He was on the run in a tough environment. You know how long he was on the run? Talk about a wilderness. You ready for this? Seven years. Seven years running from a man who wanted him dead. The most powerful man in their nation. Imagine that. Hiding from the most powerful man in our land because he wanted you dead. It would be a frightening experience. It was intense for him. So someone is out to kill him. He's under duress without food and water. And how does David respond? Well, there are three ways that we're going to highlight real briefly in this text today as we're low on time. The first thing is this. David recharges his relationship with God in Christ as he seeks God with a longing heart, a longing heart. Listen to the evocative language of verse 1. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He is thirsting for God. He is so weary, he is longing for God's strength. He hasn't got physical uh, physical strength to endure, and as a result, he is seeking the Lord. Verse 8 goes on to say another thing. He clings to God. He clings to God and desperately reaches out for him. Why would he do that? Well, because, and why would he do that and what's spiritual about that? Well, it's easier to reach, if you think, for something else in this world now rather than God, who is often hard to find, often hard to see. Well, this is instructive for us, that when your battery is low, you pursue God as a lasting, slow charge in your life. You don't seek relief first. Let me explain. I am not saying that David's physical needs weren't important. Uh, In fact, we know later on that he seeks out his physical needs But there is a priority that David's talking about here. In the midst of his longing, of his trial, of his wilderness, he's saying, I want you, not food and water. I want you first, before food and water. Where have we heard this before? This same sentiment, 
where you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in the midst of real physical needs, the basics of life, and all these things will be added to you. That's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom in the midst of all that we have around us that can give us relief. Seek God first and the the rule of God over your life. And this is the most important thing that you got to deal with in your walk with Jesus when it comes to building a relationship with him. And you ready for this? Here's my question. I'm going to ask you. I ask myself. We're going to keep asking each other for this year. What do you want from God? What do you want from God? What are you thirsty for? What are you hungry for? What makes you tired? David does not seek the answer to this question in the relief of this world first. He goes to God first in his pursuit saying, Oh God, my God, I seek you. Oh God, my God, I thirst for you. You see, David knows what he needs is not worldly refreshment, but spiritual refreshment. And the wonder of all this is Jesus Christ himself, the one who came into our world 2,000 years ago, offers spiritual refreshment. Jesus says himself in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst The bread that I will give him, give for the life of the world, is my flesh. In John 7, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come after me and drink. And for those who say, I'm tired, which is where I live a lot of the time, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hear that? Jesus says, come to me. For your deepest longing. Yeah, you even think, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I should get food or water. No, 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 no. Start with God first in your pursuit. Let me give this an application to you. What do you want in life right now? Do you want companionship because you're lonely? Do you want security in what seems like instability in life? Do you want success vocationally? Do you want harmony in broken relationships? Start with Christ. He is success. He is security. He is companionship first. All the other things do matter that go with those. But you start with Christ first. I'll give you an example of something I've been learning the last six months. So I've been kind of pursuing God in a new prayer rhythm in my life. I've been thinking about how I've told you for years, I'm a defensive person by nature. I I like a good fight. It's not always good at all. Ask my brothers who have to labor with me at Redeemer sometimes. Yet, I sometimes forget and am learning more and more that I don't need to be defensive. God is my shield. God is my refuge and my stronghold. And that out of that truth comes a new way of living, a new way of enjoying God and interacting with people in love. Someone 
may say here today, okay, so you want us to seek God first and his righteousness and, and then seek the other things. How do you do that? Well, let me tell you how not to do it. And that's the fast charge. The fast charge says if I just get out of my circumstances or uh, assuage the pain, then I'll be okay. The, ask, the fast charge asks, why me? And then an entitlement either demands from God in anger or escapes into distractions or self-medication. The fast charge puts relief over God. The slow charge is different. The slow charge is you meet Christ in the hardship. You call on him in the midst of the tension. You pursue him even when it seems to be silent with him. That is pursuing Christ over relief. The way to do that in the Christian walk is prayer. The Psalms are prayers. They're even prayers that are put to music to be sung amidst God's people. In fact, I would submit to you that David probably prayed this, this psalm over and over and over again as he wrote it, just like you would writing a song if you've ever written a song. He prayed it again and again so it evoked what was in his heart in love for God. I would hazard a guess that most of us here struggle with prayer. We struggle with seeing the need of spending time with God or conversing with Him because sometimes it feels like we're talking to a brick wall. Sometimes we're too busy to serve Him and we're too preoccupied with our responsibilities. And I want to tell you, I totally get that. I am an activist in task-oriented by nature. I am a man. I would much rather do something and get it done than pause and stop and do relationship even with God. But here's the thing. The thing about hardship and stress and even conflict is this. It stops us in our tracks. When we have trouble and even futility in our lives, it stops us in our tracks so that we might pause and consider the big picture of God who is ruling over all, of the God who cares, of the God who saves and redeems and delivers. When you feel your need, don't go to relief first. Go to prayer first. When you feel your pain and you feel the longing and the ache of my marriage is not coming through, my kids aren't coming through the way I want them to, my career is not the way I'd hoped it would be, stop and go to Jesus. Pursue Him and think He's the one who is the way it should be. He is the one who can offer me life. The first step to recharging with Christ is indeed seeking Him to fulfill our longings in every way. There is a second step, and we're going to go fast these last few minutes. The second step is in verses 2 through 8. In verses 2 through 8, David says some profound things. After this huge lament of disorientation, he turns and starts to get orientated. Oriented towards God. 
Look at this, verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. This is a fascinating turn of events. After being feeling his thirst and his weariness of his even lostness and distance in the wilderness, he engages God in several ways. First, he remembers. Do you notice that? He goes backwards and says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Then he goes on to reflect on the love of God. It's like he goes backwards in the midst of the trial he is in, and he remembers how God had worked in history. Hmm, where would we find that out in our world? Where would we find that out as Christians, how God's worked in history? Scripture. He is dwelling and meditating on how God has worked in history in Scripture. And as a result, it renews him. He remembers, oh yeah, you're powerful. You are loving. Here is the key. Whenever you want to make a turn from disorientation in your life to going into prayer towards orientation, remember what God has done. Dwell on God's work in history. And bring it even closer to home. How has God worked in your life? What has he done to save you from? This past week, I went through this exercise and I was thinking through the remembering piece that I've been working on for some years now. And then it hit me. Where would I be if I were not a Christian today? And then I thought of my family of origin. Uh, I would have probably been divorced at some point. There's divorce all over my family background. The odds would have been that I'd been abusing alcohol in some shape, form, or fashion. It's all over the family. Odds are I'd have been a workaholic. Okay, I'm still working on that one. But a workaholic without a conscience. Without Jesus, I could have been one or any of those very easily. The odds were against me. But Jesus came into my life, my family's life. He changed me. He changed us. And you know what? After thinking about it, I was like, wow, look at where I am today. I'm married to a fabulous woman. I got a great son. I love my daughter. I am in a whole family that could have been in a bad shape. I'm in a career that is a gift. I don't deserve to be here. God has saved me. And I couldn't help but think, man, this is cool. This is great. Praise you, Lord. Praise your name. Do this exercise in your life. Carry out the logical consequences of your sin where you could be without Jesus and come back and think, he changed me at that point. He saved me. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Second thing you do is in the remembering is you not only remember the extraordinary ways of God in history, but you remember to hope. The very tone of this text goes from I'm thirsty, I'm dry, I'm weary, uh, to but I'm going to worship you. Did you notice all the wills in this text? I will bless you. I will praise you. I will uh, bring joyful lips to you. What is he doing? Well, here's the beauty. 
If you've encountered the salvation of God in your life in any way, if he's delivered you from anything for good, you go back and remember that and realize he can do it again. And when he does it again, I'm going to be there to praise you, Lord. I am resolved to honor you, to give you glory for what you've done. You saved me once. You saved me that time and that time. You saved me from that, that, and that. You could do it again. The wonder of following Christ and engaging him in relationship is you keep making him the reference point of your life. You keep going back to him in every circumstance, in good times and hard times. And the beauty of that is you learn to need him. Here's what I mean. What happens in that space between when you feel your need and things are hard, like David had there in the wilderness, seven years, and finally when God delivered him, answered his prayer? What's in between that space? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's waiting. Waiting on the Lord in faith, in hope, and in love. Waiting is the hardest thing for us to do as American Christians. We want instant, fast-charge spirituality. Go get your charge from the latest spiritual thrill ride. But I'm telling you today, people have been doing that since the golden calf in Exodus 32. Real spirituality is where you go and you seek God and he's silent for a day, for a week, for a month, and you're still pursuing him. You're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking in desperation. And then he shows up. In a serendipitous moment that you could not have manufactured or manipulated, he shows up and reveals himself in power and glory so that you are convinced in the waiting that he is God and you are not. Real spirituality is the business of waiting on the Lord, but you're waiting with one big thing, emotion. I have to conclude on this, but here it is. This text is full of emotion. It's full of desperation. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. The, the semblance of joy, but I'm going to worship you. And the end of our text, which I can't get to now, he even gets mad. You're going to take down your enemies. The most underrated part of spirituality and pursuing Christ is what God does with our emotions. How our emotions are working within us in relationship to God. Many of us come from maybe a spiritual background. We Presbyterians are notorious for this. We're like, emotions, you don't trust them, forget about them, don't deal with them. Yeah, that's a problem because God made us emotional beings. In point of fact, sometimes you can't trust your emotions. But here's the thing about emotions. You need to think of them as a light on your dashboard pointing you to something going on within you or something going on within the world. 
relative to you. How you are being affected. That's what emotions do. When you follow Jesus, I'm telling you, pay attention to how you feel. Recognize that your feelings may not be consistent with absolute truth and reality of who God is and what's going on in the world, but pay attention anyway because they're pointing to something. Dan Allender says it this way. Your emotions are either pressing you toward God or pulling you away from God. Which one is it? Men, if you're angry, where are you going with the anger? Are you like me? Vindictive. Uh, I'll take you down. You mess with me. I'll take you out. You'll see. That's where my flesh goes. Or do you take your anger to the Lord like David and you pray in your anger? Look at what they've done to me. Hurt. Saul's hurt me. I mean, he's attacking. He's coming after me. He wants to take my life. Bring justice, Lord. And I trust you to do it in your way because I don't trust how I do justice. You see the difference between those? Emotion in our spirituality points to where our heart is with God. And as we talk these next few weeks about spirituality in Christ, what it means to be in relationship with Him, we're going to pay attention to those things, those cues that show up in the very emotive psalms. Jesus calls us to be feeling beings. And He calls us to be feeling beings because then we love Him with feeling. This is the road to recharging with Christ. And we're going to look at more aspects of that in the coming weeks. But remember this. In the pain, we seek God with longing. In the waiting, we remember God's works and resolve to worship. And even in spiritual warfare, with passion, emotion, we seek God and hope in Him that all things will be resolved. Wherever you are with God today whether you're a believer who is enjoying good times with Jesus, whether you're someone exploring Christianity for the first time and you feel your thirst acutely, even if you're a struggling Christian, which I would hazard a guess would be most of us here, and you feel your thirst acutely, follow David to a recharged life with Christ and in the power of the Spirit. And I conclude with an illustration from C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, we all have cars. Cars run on gasoline. Even the green kind of cars run on gasoline today. And as Lewis says, cars really don't run properly on anything else. You can't put Coca-Cola or water into a car to make it work. God has designed you and me, the human machine, if you will, to run on himself. He is the fuel that was designed for our souls. The food and drink we are designed to feed on. And as Lewis says, there is just no good in asking God to make us happy without him. What kind of gasoline are you putting in your, your car today?
what do you want? And what do you want from God? Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come to you and we confess that all of us, Lord, like sheep have gone astray. We wander off and we're seeking relief in so many ways. I am the chief of sinners. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that, you want to interrupt us, even with hardship sometimes, to point us to you, to a life in you that is rich, that is full, that is what you intended us to live with in you. Lord, as, as Augustine prayed, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are indeed restless until they find their rest in you. So come, Lord, even as we conclude our worship, meet us in amazing grace that brought us to you. In Christ's name, amen.